Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey, y'all. This is episode 108 of Reclaiming the Faith. This is called Matchsticks and Unconditional Election. But before we get into the show notes, I want to give you a sample of another song that's on my upcoming EP called Genesis. And this song is called Let Fantasies Drown. 40 days in, 40 nights so long. They call me crazy, but that deluge just raged on. All right, so again, that song is called Let Fantasies Drown. Uh, We're about to start mixing the third song, which is about Genesis 1 through 4. So, yeah, be praying for that. All right, well, today we're talking a little bit about Mark Driscoll, uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Augustine, and uh, this idea of people being created as matchsticks and how the early Christians would respond to such um, statements. If you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith. And if you feel led to contribute to this ministry, you can do that by visiting my Patreon page, patreon.com slash philsbaker, where you will find two videos every month for $5 or more. I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency along with BDK and Kurt, who put put out great content every week. So if you want to find us, uh, go to our two Omega Frequency channels, Omega Frequency and Omega Frequency Live on YouTube. Please go check that out. Uh, the early Christian quotes that I use can generally be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, which you can purchase for a mere $5 on the Scroll Publishing website, scrollpublishing.com. All right, well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 108, Matchsticks and Unconditional Election. Lately, I've been listening to a quite intriguing podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which is very much about the rise and fall of Mark Driscoll and uh, the culture that was created at his previous church called Mars Hill, which uh, pretty much enabled him to act like a tyrant and a dictator, and um, uh, there was no accountability, and 
Like I said, it, it led to his downfall. And uh, in the episode entitled, You Read the Bible, Ringo, we really get a look into how he changed, uh, particularly how his theological beliefs led to a distinct change in his actions and his treatment of others. And so what I'm going to do right now is play a short clip from this episode and uh, give you that window into how his changing theological beliefs changed uh, his treatment of people. So here we go. I confess it's been a little difficult to sort out exactly when and how Mark made a shift to calling himself Reformed. It seems like if you were inside Mars Hill, he always was. For instance, many people remember early on seeing Douglas Wilson's writings featuring prominently in the church's resources. But outside Mars Hill, quite a few folks remember a specific, pivotal moment where his theological convictions changed. Here's Doug Padgett again from the Young Leaders Network. He changed. He locked into a theological perspective that caused a great riff in our friendship and our relationship. And I mean, it, it, it was fundamentally a theological break that came along with a relational break because just the way he treated people in who disagreed with him theologically. (laughs) Rick McKinley and Mark had been particularly close and like-minded and they'd go on to help lead Acts 29 together in the years ahead. Rick also remembers this specific moment where Mark made a pivot. There was a, a moment where he went away for the summer to figure out his theology and kind of these things. And he came back feeling like I'm reformed and this and that. And that's when I would say the window shut into his heart. Tony Jones remembers this transition too. We did a series of regional events. And I think I went to the ones in Denver and Minneapolis. And there was one in Seattle. There was one in Texas. But the one in Seattle, there was like a closing panel discussion. Driscoll said in an offhanded way something like, well, I mean, none of this really matters because God made some of you to be matchsticks anyways. Like he, he, he articulated this very conservative Calvinistic, the elect versus the damned theology. So basically what you have going on is Mark Driscoll, who has Calvinistic leanings uh, early on, but then goes away for like a sabbatical to spend a lot of time really honing in and fine-tuning what his theology is. He comes to believe strongly in Reformation theology. He writes an over 400-page book called Doctrine. And you start to see the natural uh, conclusions of these doctrines start to play out and leak out in sermons and in conferences to the point where he calls some of the people listening to him speak at one of these conferences matchsticks. Where would he get an idea that some people are matchsticks basically created to be burned and destroyed by God. Well, he got that idea from the original reformer, Martin Luther. 
1525, German Lutheran peasants revolted against the oppressive and unjust practices of the nobility class. They justified their actions with Luther's teaching that loving one's neighbor involves avenging wrongs done to them. The peasants took up arms and attacked the estates of the German princes. Luther initially had sympathy for the peasants, but he eventually sided with those who held power, money, and influence. In the midst of the revolt, he wrote a document to the princes encouraging them that they must do God's work and destroy the peasants. I'm going to read a bit from that now. He says, quote, Anyone who can be proved to be a seditious person is an outlaw before God and the emperor, and whoever is the first to put him to death does right and well. Therefore, let everyone who can smite, slay, and stab secretly or openly, remembering that nothing can be more poisonous, hurtful, or devilish than a rebel. It is just as when one must kill a mad dog. If you do not strike him, he will strike you and the whole land with you. They cloak this terrible and horrible sin with the gospel and call themselves Christian brethren. Thus they become the worst blasphemers and slanderers of his holy name under the outward appearance of the gospel. They honor and serve the devil, thus deserving death in body and soul ten times over. I have never heard of a more hideous sin. This is not a time to sleep, and there is no place for patience or mercy. This is the time of the sword, not the day of grace. Thus, anyone who is killed fighting on the side of the rulers may be a true martyr in the eyes of God if he fights with the kind of conscience I have just described, for he acts in obedience to God's word. On the other hand, anyone who perishes on the peasant's side is an eternal firebrand of hell, for he bears the sword against God's word and is disobedient to him and is a member of the devil. Now, what we're hitting on here is the doctrine, at its core, is the doctrine of unconditional election and unconditional predestination. And by that, we mean the eternal decree of God by which he determined with himself whatever wished to happen with regard to every man. All are not created on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life and others to eternal damnation. And accordingly, each has been created for one of these two ends. We say that he has been predestined either to life or to death. We say then that Scripture clearly proves this much— that God, by his eternal and immutable counsel, determined once for all those whom it was his pleasure one day to admit to salvation and those whom, on the other hand, it was his pleasure to doom to destruction. We maintain that this counsel, as regards the elect, is founded on his free mercy without any respect to human worth while those he dooms to destruction are excluded from access to life by a just and blameless, but at the same time incomprehensible judgment. And just in case you thought I was painting a uh, straw man picture there of the doctrine of unconditional election, that was actually a quote from Calvin's 
Institutes of the Christian Religion in Book 3, Chapter uh, 21. So that's straight from the horse's mouth. Uh, You got two of the top reformers there saying that some people are just created to be matchsticks. Some people, because it brings God pleasure, uh, are just created to be set on fire by hell. That's the way God wants it. And really, if you press down, um, the majority of people, the vast majority of people to, um, to Calvin and Luther were, without ever having a chance, created to be damned to hell. Matchsticks. And I know that's really harsh. It it is a terrible thing to say. And many people who would consider themselves Reformed or Calvinists would reject that statement. But if we're really pressing into it and taking the beliefs of unconditional election seriously, there is no single predestination, uh, single uh, election, even if one held that God um, chose those who would be saved but didn't determine that others would go to hell, uh, it's kind of a cop-out because by specifically choosing some for hell, he is, by definition, choosing others for damnation. And uh, so we need to be intellectually honest about these beliefs. That I mean, it's very crude and coarse for Driscoll to talk like that, but in Reformation theology, a huge percentage of humanity are created as matchsticks to be burned eternally. And that's just terrible. Now, I mean, what do you do with passages like John 3, 16 through 17? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish or have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. What do you do with those words like, you know, the word like world? Well, um, for reformers, it's not the whole world um, that he loved. It's uh, those who are of the elect, those whom he choose chosen to save. And there are some who uh, reject the doctrine of limited atonement in Calvinism, saying, no, Jesus died for everybody, therefore he does love the whole world, but at the same time holding to unconditional election by which they would admit that even though Jesus died for them, he planned all along for them to burn in hell. So I'm not sure how loving that actually is. And if you do believe that some people were created by God to be burned, do you think it might be possible that that could affect your treatment of other people if you're taking those thoughts to their natural conclusions? Well, with Martin Luther, it certainly did, because the people that he considered matchsticks, he encouraged others to slay them. He encouraged people to slay without any mercy people Luther determined were the matchsticks. So these are not people that God so loved, unless you're saying that God so loved for them to perish, which seems a little bit unbiblical. But but let's move forward a little bit in history, a century or so, and we get introduced to people called the Puritans. 
According to John Coffey and Paul Lim, Puritanism was a variety of Reformed Protestantism aligned with the continental Calvinistic churches. They say that Puritanism was a distinctive and particularly intense variety of early modern Reformed Protestantism. So, how did the Puritans treat people who uh, weren't like them or didn't look like them or didn't act like them? Did the, did the Puritans share Martin Luther's matchstick theology? Well, the Puritans believed in their divine right to occupy the land of America. And I want to read to you a small section from David Berceau's book, In God We Don't Trust. And he says, uh, starting on page 56, the Indians living in Massachusetts were generally willing to accommodate the new Puritan settlers, just as they originally had accepted the pilgrims. However, this was only so long as these new English settlers remained in small numbers. Had only a thousand settlers come, there would have been sufficient room for the colonists and the Indians to live by, side by side. But as I've said, in a span of little more than a decade, up to 20,000 Puritans came to New England. This put a severe strain on the limited hunting and fishing grounds of the local Indians. Before long, the Indians realized that if they didn't fight back, they would be pushed out of their land altogether. But when the Indians started fighting for their rights and their land, the Puritans viewed it as though the, quote, red Canaanites, unquote, were unfairly and viciously attacking them. In the Puritans' minds, this gave the Puritans the justification to retaliate. Sadly for the Indians, the Puritans had powerful weapons with which to strike back. What particularly makes the Puritans look bad today in the eyes of the world is the mystic massacre. In 1637, word had reached the Puritans that the Pequot Indians were planning to attack them. As had the pilgrims before them, the Puritans decided they would attack the Indians first. So one night, Captain John Mason led a band of Puritan soldiers as they stole upon the Pequot village near the Mystic River in Massachusetts. The village itself was protected by a palisade fence, a barrier made of pointed sticks. The Puritans, who were accompanied by Indian allies, surrounded the Pequot village. Then some of the Puritan militia slipped through the gate. They began slaughtering the sleeping Indians at random. Then Captain Mason grabbed a burning stick and threw it on the roof of one of the huts. The Indian huts were made of woven straw mats and they were packed very closely together. So the fire spread instantly. The Puritans ran out of the village, uh, the burning village. They shut the gate behind them and waited outside with their guns. Within minutes, the entire village was in flames, and nearly all of the Indian men, women, and children were burned alive. If any Indians tried to flee out of the gate or climb over the fence, the Puritans shot them down with their muskets. After annihilating the main village of the Pequots, the Puritans then hunted down the Pequots from other villages driving them into a swamp. 
Here, they gave the Pequots the choice of either being slaughtered or surrendering and being sold as slaves. The women who surrendered were made domestic slaves. The men who surrendered were shipped off to the West Indies to work as slaves on the sugar plantations where they quickly died. The pilgrims were in the process of joining up with the Puritans for the attack on the Pequots, but they arrived after the battle was already over. Still, they heartily approved of what had taken place. William Bradford, the pilgrim leader, later described the incident from eyewitness reports, quote, It was a fearful sight to see them frying in the fire, with streams of blood quenching it. The smell was horrible, but the victory seemed a sweet sacrifice, and they gave praise to God who had worked so wonderfully for them. Unquote. And that, unfortunately, is matchstick theology lived out with no restraint. Theodore Roosevelt was the 26th president of the United States, and he definitely grew up in an environment of Reformed theology. Uh, the Dutch Reformed Church on his father's side and the Scottish Presbyterian Church on his mother's side, uh, definitely played a uh, pivotal role in founding his views not only of God, but also on people, not to mention his own upbringing in New York's Madison Square Presbyterian Church. And like the earlier Puritans, Roosevelt held some pretty interesting beliefs about the Native Americans. He said in 1886, I don't go so far as to think the only good Indian is the dead Indian, but I believe nine out of every ten are. Uh, continuing in his uh, volume two of The Winning of the West, he wrote, All men of sane and wholesome thought must dismiss with impatient contempt the plea that these continents would be reserved for the use of scattered savage tribes whose life was but a few degrees less meaningless, squalid, and ferocious than that of the wild beast with whom they held joint ownership. It is as idle to apply to savages the rules of international morality which apply between stable and cultured communities. I don't know if you caught that, but he said that the Native Americans' lives were only a few degrees more meaningful than the buffalo. Let that sink in. Now, in, in stark contrast to the teachings of the Reformers is that of the early Christians. The early Christians did not believe that God arbitrarily selected some for salvation and others for damnation because it brings him so much pleasure to damn people. No, uh, they did not believe that. I'm going to read a section from Irenaeus uh, in his book Against Heresies, book 4, uh, chapter 39. And he's going to basically be talking about soteriology, who gets to be saved and who gets damned and why. All right. So he writes, those who are blinded are involved in darkness through their own fault. The light does never enslave anyone by necessity, nor again does God exercise compulsion upon anyone unwilling to accept the exercise of his skill. 
Those persons, therefore, who have apostatized from the light given by the Father and transgressed the law of liberty have done so through their own fault, since they have been created free agents and possessed of power over themselves. But God, foreknowing all things, prepared fit habitations for both, kindly conferring that light which they desire on those who seek after the light of incorruption and resort to it. But for the, but for the despisers and mockers who avoid and turn themselves away from this light and who do, as it were, blind themselves, he has prepared darkness suitable to persons who oppose the light, and he has inflicted an appropriate punishment upon those who try to avoid being subject to him. Submission to God is eternal rest, so that they who shun the light have a place worthy of their flight, and those who fly from eternal rest have a habitation in accordance with their fleeing. Now, since all good things are with God, they who by their own determination fly from God do defraud themselves of all good things, and having been thus defrauded of all good things with respect of God, with respect to God, they shall consequently fall under the just judgment of God. For those persons who shun rest shall justly incur punishment, and those who avoid the light shall justly dwell in darkness. For as in the case of this temporal light, those who shun it do deliver themselves over to darkness, so that they do themselves become the cause to themselves that they are destitute of light and do inhabit darkness. And as I have already observed, the light is not the cause of such an unhappy condition of existence to them. So those who fly from the eternal light of God, which contains in itself all good things, are themselves the cause to themselves of their inhabiting eternal darkness, destitute of all good things, having become to themselves the cause of their consignment to an abode of that nature. So, God According to the early Christians, God has not unconditionally elected certain people to be, as Mark Driscoll put it, matchsticks. He has determined, however, that those who by their own free will reject his son will receive the wrath which they refuse to let Jesus take for them. To the early Christians, when they read 1 Timothy 4.9, they believed it. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Basically, Jesus really died for everyone, and he has provided the opportunity for everyone to repent and believe the gospel and to be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his Son. And so it is our responsibility to live as ambassadors of the kingdom of God's Son, Jesus Christ, the kingdom of heaven, so that people will be persuaded by our actions, by the way that we treat them, by the way that we live out Jesus' teachings, by the way that we live and act as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. They will be persuaded to repent of their clinging upon this world, this present darkness, 
and go and hold on, grab on tightly to the hem of his garment, grab on tightly to God's Son, Jesus Christ, to cling to him, to believe on him and be saved, become adopted as a son or daughter of the King of Kings. The early Christians, though they may call people out that they disagree with, though they may use harsh terms in debating against other people, would never ever kill another person who is made in the image and likeness of God. Because they believed, like Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3, verse 7 through 9, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God has not created people to be matchsticks because it brings him pleasure to do so. No, God so loves the entire world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God bless you. Just a typical morning In a flash it all changed When words written on pages became What my eyes saw that day See the Holy One's glory You'll know it's the end Your fire surprised me instead Your mercy I can't comprehend Won't you send me Blood for us.